So there, there's a big difference between a physique athlete and the nutrient timing research and a sport athlete with nutrient timing research. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist, and this is season number seven. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Bill Campbell, PhD, Professor of Exercise Science and the Director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory at the University of South Florida. Bill is a former president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He's published over 200 scientific papers and abstracts three textbooks and 20 book chapters in areas related to physique enhancement, sports nutrition, resistance training, and dietary supplementation. In this conversation, Bill and I will talk physique nutrition, how things change or stay the same when we shift the conversation to team sport athletes. And we'll also cover some tips for the midlife performance staff members and coaches too. Before we get started, AthletePerformanceNutrition.com is hosting the second annual Football Performance Nutrition Virtual Summit this June 13th to 15th. The speaker lineup is outstanding, including Dr. Matt Brakes, Director of Nutrition, LSU, Scott Sennert, Director of Sport Performance at the Dallas Cowboys, John Parenti, Director of Nutrition, Miami Dolphins, Sebastian Zorn, Director of Football Nutrition, Stanford University, Kate Calloway, Director of Performance Nutrition, Carolina Panthers, Abigail O'Connor, Director of Performance Nutrition for the University of Michigan, and many, many more. Join us June 13th to 15th for the second annual FPN Virtual Summit. Register for free at athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits for all the details. And we've got more fantastic speakers to come. All right, let's do this. My conversation with Dr. Bill Campbell. Bill, really appreciate you carving out some time for us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Listen, I've been following your work for some time, so it's really great to be able to connect and then have a conversation. And I'm curious, just to kick things off here, you know, for yourself, what led you down the path of getting into research and getting into the academic side of things? Yeah, it didn't. It wasn't my childhood dream. <laughs> it, it was um, serendipitous route, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll I'll give this kind of this uh, lightning moment, so to speak. Yeah. I was in sales. I used to, my first job was in marketing. I used to sell bug killer and weed killer. So imagine a, a early 20, 20, you know, 21, 22 year old whose life it is to kill weeds, yeah, <laughs> and nice. to kill bugs. Not, not my passion. Uh. So I don't know what I was reading, but I read something that said, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Gotcha. And I, I, for some reason, that's just like, yeah, I don't want to work. I'm lazy. So, and at that time, I loved bodybuilding and I love, really love sports nutrition, like supplements and, and, and like protein and carbs. So it was probably sports nutrition cool. that kind of lit the fire to say, hey, I'm going to go back to school because, you know, my first degree was in business. I said, I'm gonna, I'm just going to do a reset. And I'm, I'm not that, you know, well, I guess I'm in my mid-20s, go back to school thinking I'm going to work for a sports 
nutrition company. And then the more I got into my master's program, the more I you know, was introduced to research, liked research. And I, and I, I realized, and I think smartly, I, I can make a bigger impact on the profession if I go an academic route, which is what I've done. And I'm, I'm very blessed by God to, to have a job that I love and to do work that I love. And I get to talk to experts like you. <laughs> so what's not the love about this? And Bill, was there sort of, was there a mentor or someone as well that was kind of led you down that path as you're figuring out that, Hey, this research stuff is really fascinating. It's really making an impact. You know, I'm curious the people in your life around that time that, that might've lit that fire as well. No, that's a good, yeah, I, I love that question. And I'm going to say, no, um, I was a first generation college student. Um, I never even thought about that, man. It, it would have been really yeah, helpful. Exactly. <laughs> it looks like you did all right. Anyway, so well done. Yeah, I, I just I, I honestly feel like looking back, like I feel like I wasted an entire decade, like my entire 20s was was wasted. Um, I went. No, I know what it was. I went back to school in my at 28 years old and I happened to be get engaged right at that time. So undergraduate degree, again, working other stuff, had to go back to school part time. So that's that's. I don't have many regrets, but one regret is, man, I, I wasted a, a decade just screwing around. Well, they say it's a good decade to do it in though, your 20s. So that's uh, if, you're, if you're gonna do it, that's, that's the one <laughs> that's, to choose. Yeah. Um, listen, I'm sure everyone listening is familiar with you already, but can you walk us through a little bit of your academic progression and where you're at now? And then we can we can dive in and, and pick your brain on a few topics. Sure, yes. I, right, currently, I'm a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida. So as we were just discussing in my late 20s, did a career change, was in sales and went back and got a master's degree in exercise physiology. And then I went right into a PhD program called Exercise, Nutrition and Preventive Health. Both of those degrees were at Baylor University in Texas. And when it was time to when I graduated and it was time to work, I asked my wife, where would you where would you know where would you want me to apply for jobs? And it was she was really cool. She goes, We can we can live anywhere, you can work anywhere as long as it's hot. <laughs> Smart lady. <laughs> so that eliminated, yeah. <laughs> so I had to draw a line in the country in the United States. All right, so we're gonna have to live south. So I I uh, mainly applied to jobs in Florida, Arizona, I think one in Tennessee. And 2007, I started. Uh, my first job, and I'm still here at the University of South Florida. I direct a laboratory called the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory. And as I said earlier, I'm, I'm kind of living a dream life. I, I absolutely love what I do. Yeah, that's, that's tremendous. And can we start, Bill, with even the physiology side first? Because I think that's one where a lot of performance nutritionists, sport dietitians, sometimes we jump to strategies and protocols. And, you know, obviously informing Gerber, this being a physiologist first and really understanding the physiology of things. Can you talk a little bit about how obviously that influences your research and when you're working with with athletes and clients? Yeah. And, and let me, let me, let me just take that question and I'll, I'll actually say how I teach my sports nutrition right. class. So when I get my students in, this is mainly in my undergraduate class, I, I tell them we're not, we're not going to talk about supplements. We're not really going to talk about, um, specific diets, we're going to learn exercise metabolism. So it goes back to that old saying, I don't know if it's a, uh, it's an old proverb, um, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man a fish, 
feed them for life. So I'm so invested in the physiology, the metabolism that I teach a sports nutrition class so that we understand as much as we can about carbohydrate metabolism, protein metabolism, fat metabolism, exercise metabolism. Because I believe if you have that foundation, any supplement that's introduced or any diet or even any training system, if you have that physiological background, it doesn't matter what the question is or what the training parameters, you're going to know, okay, this supplement claims this based on my knowledge of physiology. I know that that, well, that can't be true or yes, that there's potential for this or this sport is much different than this sport because of the physiological demands on the body. So I'm going to train my athlete like this. So I would say that influences my teaching and, and obviously research. You have to have theoretical mechanisms of action if you're going to do a, a research study. So it's, it's obvious with my research, but it's not so obvious with my teaching. And I, I like that question because that, again, it's everything is physiology. And the another thing I like, I'm not going to remember 29 different supplements that I'm going to get asked about. No, the big ones, I will creatine and protein, but physiology, it really doesn't change. Anatomy yeah. doesn't change. Like once you know it and grasp it, you, you, you've set yourself up for a kind of like lifelong success in terms of, of career progression and just be at least enabling yourself to be an expert in, in that area. Yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing skill set to have. And it's definitely those fundamentals that practitioners need to kind of come back to every every year or so, right? To be able to, a bit like years ago, I was watching uh, professional golfers in the range working on their grip and their stance and their alignment. And it's like, wait a minute, that's what you learn when you're five or six and you first start playing the sport. How come these guys and gals who are the best in the world seem to be taking half the training session to work on these fundamental concepts? Um, and it's sort of the parallel there to really understand the yeah. physiology. Now, right. Hey, let me ask you something yeah. real quick, because you're, I, I imagine you have a lot, you probably share similar thoughts. So formerly edu, being formally educated, there's so much information on YouTube, Google, internet. Do you think that people are able to get the knowledge that we have just without getting a formal education? I, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. I think that's an interesting one because we we live now in an age where even in the last five years the explosion of of information and experts putting out information so there's no shortage of access to information but i think the, like just what you mentioned before the curation of the information first of all so that it can stick and, and clinicians and practitioners learning how to actually apply it just sort of like a bit in your analogy you know they've got these tools maybe but unless they have someone like yourself or another subject matter expert to show them how to use the tools in the right order or you want to use a baking analogy, you know, I think that's maybe where we see a lot of, uh, sometimes when I consult, I see a lot of just strategies plugged into place without what you just mentioned, which is kind of going back to 30,000 feet and asking yourself, well, what's the athlete doing? What are the demands? What is this diet or supplement going to be impacting? So I, I, that would be my take. How about yourself? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's very just like my lack of a mentor, <laughs> which I never even thought of that. So no thanks worries. for ruining. <laughs> thanks for. But yeah, having somebody say, the internet can give you all the knowledge, but to have somebody say, here's here's the context yeah. for why you need to know this, and and I take a lot of pride in that. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, don't worry about this forty eight percent of this stuff. You're never gonna come across yeah. this in life as a strength and conditioning professional or as a sports nutritionist. But I'm telling you, this is the stuff that you're going to come, you know, if you learn this, 
you're going to be so happy. You're going to be thankful that you did. So yeah, I think the curation and the and the perspective is where the value still is. 100%. I think that's the area where even in evidence-based science or medicine, we always think of what's in the white papers, but that that practitioner experience or wisdom, which is what you're talking about there, of, of being able to tell the person, hey, all, the, all this stuff over here, don't worry about that. That's 5% of it. This over here is where you're going to spend most of your time. And if we use that to segue into physique nutrition, you know, for yourself, you know, in terms of a philosophy or, or, or big rocks, as we often call them, um, but where where do you start with clients when we're talking physique nutrition? So I just in terms of who I believe my research serves the most, the, the, the type of population, it's not the competitive bodybuilder, but I learned from them. And it's not a sedentary person with obesity, although I've done research in that. It's this person who's kind of a lot like me and my wife. We're not competitive bodybuilders. We're not sedentary. We want to we want to exercise. We want to have a nutrition program that helps us perform and look like we were going to step on a stage, maybe not quite that lean. So it's the what I call the good to great person. So this person who's pretty serious about their yeah. fitness. So that's that's who I think that my research, that's what it focuses on. And of course, bodybuilders and people with obesity can both get value from, from the work that my team is doing. And then uh, the question about where do we start? I I, I would start, I kind of start with a stimulus adaptation philosophy. So what do you want? Are you trying to, and for physique, it's usually you want to have larger muscles and lower body fat. So we start with, well, larger muscles is a resistance exercise. So we need to have that stimulus. So we get that in the yep. weight room. And then the question is, okay, now how can we optimally adapt to that stimulus? That's in the kitchen. That's the nutrition. So it's the at the most basic level, we need to have the proper stimulus, and then we want to optimize the body's adaptation, which is the nutritional component. And I'm sure you get this all the time from novice clients, bodybuilders, even athletes. I want to get bigger and I want to get leaner at the same time. So could you walk us through the benefits, the the potential, let's call them limiting factors there, if you're really trying to tread that line of, of being able to add size and stay lean versus just adding size and yeah, the first thing I, I would say is you're you're not your your progress is going to be very incremental. Yeah. So you're you're kind of chasing. I grew up on a farm. You're chasing two rabbits, and that's yeah. not always ideal. But at the same time, you can gain muscle and lose body fat simultaneously. 10, 15 years ago, most of us in this space didn't think that was possible. But as the years have gone on, we have more and more evidence that it's possible. Um, while it's possible, I still would I still suggest and and, and advise yeah. people it's it can happen, but it's the more the exception. Like it's not the it's not the expectation, but but it can happen. You can hit the bullseye, but it's not the easiest one to aim for. So let's make a bigger target. Yes, yeah. Uh, I I just as a researcher, I I go back to some research. If you have people that are not currently eating a high protein diet, and when I say high like a typical 1.2 grams per kg is average. If you can get people to just increase that from 1.2 grams per kg to 1.8 grams per kg, that alone, according to two studies that I'm aware of in humans, that alone has caused increases in lean tissue mass, losses in body fat. So protein's a pretty um, amazing macronutrient 
especially yeah. for people just being introduced to this concept of performance nutrition, physique nutrition. So that's that's a great starting point. Like we're not going to change hardly anything other than, you know, getting you in the weight room, which that that alone will change your physique, but just new just that just the new protein aspect alone is really cool what it does to to body recomposition and and it facilitates that. Um other than that, what we know, the more trained you are, the more years of resistance training you have, the less Likely it is that you're going to be able to gain muscle and lose body fat. Okay. It's much more prevalent in people who are newer to training. Um, but at the same time, it can still happen even in resistance trained individuals. Yeah, it's a great uh, insight there, particularly around the protein. If we think even performance staffs and coaches, which often get a little bit left behind when we're talking about athletes, right? It's like the staffs don't get the same level of attention, um, but there's, like the general population struggling with with weight gain and, and visceral adiposity and lack of sleep and all these types of things. And so, like you said, obviously the lifting's great, but even just getting that protein up from 1.2 grams per kilo up to 1.8 is a pretty nice way to for them to be able to, to change body composition, right? Yes. Yeah. That just that alone, no exercise. There's evidence to, to that that's reported muscle mass gains, um, reductions in body fat. And with protein intake, I mean, you know, we see gram per pound thrown around a lot. You know, I've had Stu Phillips and, and Rob Morton on talking about protein supplementation and, and sort of those marginal gains as you go up that bell curve towards you know, even 2.2 grams per kilo or gram per pound. Obviously, in physique nutrition, going above that when they're in a leaning out phase, there's some there's some benefit. Can you talk a bit about those kind of smaller gains that are on the upper side of uh, the intake? Yeah, and and you mentioned two researchers that's uh, in large to a large extent has informed my opinion on this, especially Dr. Phillips. So, th some of their work and and just my own reading into this research, and I mean I've done several protein studies myself. Sure. If your goal is to maximize lean mass, lean tissue gains, it's it appears as though 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight is about is is what we would need to maximize the lean tissue adaptations to your yeah. training. So why would we ever go above that? Well, from a physique science perspective, I believe that there are other benefits that, as you said, the more and more you get, the less and less the benefit. But there's still a benefits. So I, I think you use the word marginal yeah. benefits. So the more and more you take, the less and less the benefit, but there's still a benefit. So I I would suggest up to a gram per pound, which is 2.2 grams per kg. And what that's helping with is at, in several studies, one of them coming from my own lab and one of our protein titration studies is a loss of body fat. So and this is in resistance trained people. Now, I don't think we know the mechanism. I, it probably has a lot to do with the, the amount of calories it takes for the body to digest, absorb, process, handle that excess protein. So that's that's part of it. Um, but going up and up past 1.6 has a body composition improvement, less and less the more you get, even if it's not necessarily a muscle tissue benefit. Yeah, that's obviously important as we go from physique even to team sport athletes, which is where we'll sort of bounce back and forth here in this conversation. Um, 
looking back even 20 years ago, I mean, I think the average intake of English premiership football players was like a hundred and five grams of protein per day. And then fast forward 20 years later, and they're getting up towards that gram per pound or, or past, which is interesting to see for yourself. If you think about team sport, is it more on the recovery side? Is it also obviously potential benefits for athletes who are trying to get leaner, but when you think about protein for team sport athletes, you know, where, where do, where do you go? Yeah, I, I think the the benefit there is more recovery, but also there's still this, which again at at its at its core, there's still this adaptation to the stimulus that's imposed. And in this case, for team sport athlete, it's not always trying to build bigger muscle; it's trying to build a stronger muscle that is able to be functional to the stimulus of whatever sport they're playing, whatever skill set they need. So it's that. And even endurance athletes, they're not interested in, in necessarily imp- increasing myosin protein, like the contractile units, but there's also my, 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 um, mitochondrial protein synthesis that's maximized with higher protein intakes. And that's that's greater aerobic fitness. That's clearly better recovery. So globally, yeah. again, going back to what you said, yes, the focus for a team sport athlete would be more on recovery, but also I would say uh, getting functionally better at their skill that they need to perform in their sport. Fantastic. And we pivot to carbohydrate intake. Cause that's definitely one that uh, there's a large bandwidth. If you think about intakes from a low carb diet, to the general population to, you know, tour de France, 15 or 18 grams per kilo in a, in a tour stage, which is, which is kind of out of this world. Seen some work, Dr. Andrew Chappelle was on previously talking about elite bodybuilders in the UK consuming about five grams per kilo, I believe, of, of carbohydrate. Team sport athletes are informed by people around them, friends, families. When you start to look at carbohydrate intake and you you maybe first talk about kind of physique nutrition, and then I'll, I'll pick your brain on that physiology side of obviously the accelerations, decelerations, we think of basketball or hockey or American football and some of the demands there. Yeah, so on the physique side, what what we what I see in my lab is generally between three and five grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight. That just is where most people land. Obviously, yeah. for endurance athletes, that that would be considered low. Uh, and and what one thing I've noticed just with like nutrient timing. So in the physique world, uh, getting carbs and protein after your workouts is like ah, it doesn't matter. Um, it matters every time when you're a sport athlete, based on my, the research that I've read. Now, if you're just a bodybuilder, it, the research doesn't support um, protein timing or nutrient timing, protein and carbs. So it's kind of interesting. If you're a bodybuilder, yes, I, I can't say, well, here's three studies that say the timing's important. But anytime that we have an athlete or somebody that's trying to perform better, and I am admittedly, this is limited research, but the research is pretty consistent. Nutrient timing, carbs plus protein, pre-post yeah. or uh, post mainly, their performance is improved. So there, there's a big difference between a physique athlete and the nutrient timing research and a sport athlete with nutrient timing research. And would you say that's a combination of the physique athlete, um, the demands difference, and then even just the structure of their day with having regular protein feedings. I mean, typically eating every sort of three or four hours or so. Yeah. I, I kind of, I, I was trying to think about this. What's your take? Yeah. I, I think that the, 
just the demands on the body when you're, and again, I'm going to say just lifting weights because that's what I do. I just lift weights. It's, it's funny because it's really hard, but it's not nearly the same demands, which is tough to. Yes. And know. I think that's the difference because you have sport athletes, they're, they're lifting weights and that's a minor portion of what their focus and their energy is going towards. And then they have the other demands on their body again from their sport, their, the, the, the competition, the practice. So there's something about the carbohydrates, in my opinion, that's allowing them to recover faster. If I had to pinpoint what I think is going on, they're recovering faster from the carbohydrates, allowing them to adapt better, having higher quality training sessions, practice sessions that enable them to perform better over time. And I, I, I would be caution athletes don't take your cues from people like me who are physique scientists because it's not the same don't listen to the bodybuilder to for your advice you need that your area is performance nutrition not physique nutrition and i'm sh I, i'm sure you live with this but i i have the perception that that that's often interwoven in a way that shouldn't be yeah i mean it's certainly obviously a holdover of, of you know, years, decades ago, when that was the main source of information, wasn't it? I mean, that's how we all sort of grew up and, and getting that uh, foundation. And so it is something that definitely comes up. Um, the question I'd like to come back to is around carbohydrates with physique nutrition for yourself in terms of, you know, simple carbohydrates to, to fuel workouts, you know, how does that, is that depending on the level of the physique athlete that you're dealing with, or do you have certain guidelines or parameters that you operate around? Yeah, personally, uh, at least in our research, it's not something that we prioritize. We just make sure that a carbohydrate intake is what we prescribe to our, you know, they're not athletes in our studies, they're subjects. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm not convinced that faster or slower matters for a physique athlete. Um, again, assuming that they're eating a normal carbohydrate diet they're going to be fully replenished before the next workout so yeah. i i don't prioritize fast versus slow complex versus simple uh yeah. in in that now again i know that can change a little bit with performance athletes who need things like fruit takes a lot longer to go through you know that has to go to the liver be convert fructose into the glucose so yeah. there there are those considerations that again for a sport athlete it's it's a lot it's a lot more technical there's a lot more in my opinion there's more nuance to a team um ath, team sport athlete than a physique athlete and for someone who's again let's just say midlife with the kind of coach performance staff mid 30s 40s 50s as they're say trying to improve their physique through physique nutrition you know, is there going to be some periodization then of what you might do from a carbohydrate standpoint, or, or maybe can you give some examples? Yeah. So I'm, I'm very much married to um, adherence and making decisions based on what's easy for you. Yeah. So in that example, if I'm working with a, I would call them a lifestyle, like somebody like myself. So what we do is we say, okay, your goal is to, let's say, improve your physique. We're going to have a, what I would call a protein anchored, flexible dieting approach. So what that looks like is, first of all, we're going to calculate. And again, I'm a scientist. I like numbers yeah. and I like to work with numbers. So we're going to find out how many calories do you eat where you don't gain weight or lose weight? 
So we can do that multiple ways. I just like just using some type of app and tracking your calories for two weeks, yep. take consistent body weights. Let's dial that in so we're not guessing. Right. So that's where I start. So what what's your maintenance calories? Once we have that, if the person, if, if they're choosing, if they want to lose body fat, we put them in a caloric deficit, typically 25%. Mm-hmm. And this is a protein anchored approach. So we say your protein is going to be X. Let's just say in this case, it's 1.6 grams per kg. Okay. Um, now, it doesn't have to be yeah, that. For sure. um, if somebody really struggles with 1.2, I'm not going to say you have to get 1.6. 2. I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah, yeah, yes. But yeah, if they're currently eating 1.6, I, I would I would go higher. Mm-hmm. So we start with protein. So I, I would say to an extent, that's not negotiable. Protein is the anchoring nutrient. It's what's going to allow you to adapt to that training stimulus. Then because I have such a, and again, this is being reinforced to me almost daily in this fat loss, this weight loss, this anti-obesity research, mm-hmm. getting people to just follow the prescribed plan is everything again not easy no no five ten years ago i'm like here's the plan just follow it and now i'm appreciating it's it's athletes will athletes will do that they'll they'll do anything uh well Uh, they struggle to though (laughs) depending on the sport yeah okay yeah i'm i'm talking to an actual expert from my perspective athletes they'll do what they're told but yes I'm sure there's probably some some not truths with that. Your skills really so high. Then when you're making we get, a lot of money. It's uh, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> not always the case. Yeah, I, I could imagine. All right, so yep. we have their calorie level that's going to induce fat loss if that's their goal. We now have their set protein, and now to maximize adherence. Again, I want as few hurdles as possible. The rest of the calories that they have, what do you like? Do you like higher carbs? Well, eat more carbs. Do you like higher fat? Eat more fat. Like my wife, she loves carbs. She's going to eat a lot more carbs. I like to have bacon sometimes. I I like buffalo wings. So I'm going to have more dietary fat in my calories that are, you know, after protein. Um, And again, that comes from a philosophy of I want to change. I want to have as few disruptions to your normal way of life as possible. Um, and again, I can re- I can re- rely on the fact that for a physique goal oriented approach, it, carbs aren't going to matter. Now they'll matter if they get too low. Like if somebody's doing a ketogenic diet, then that's a conversation. Hey, there's some things you're leaving on the table here relative to your anabolic potential. Um, I wouldn't be able to have that luxury if I'm working with a team board athlete because i'm i have the the belief based on the research that i read that carbohydrates do need to have a more prominent role sure. in that environment i love what you mentioned there about sort of friction points in somebody's daily routine of being able to say well, what's realistic what can we actually implement and also important for practitioners to take note of what you mentioned there around this person likes to eat this way this person likes to eat that way at the end of the day sounds like you're going to be reducing energy through one of those methods but you you're going to pick the one that the person enjoys because that's going to lead to the greatest likelihood of compliance right yeah yeah i almost and again i was it's funny we're on this talk i'm i'm articulating this in my mind you as a um as the expert as the coach you have this plan that you're going to prescribe so we have the plan but we part of that recognition has to be 
what are they actually going to follow? Yeah. It may not be the plan. Hopefully it is. But if you give something that's impossible for them to follow and they can't follow it, I, I to an extent, you've given possibly introduced more harm. Adjust. You're trying to get them to go further than they ever would without your help. Yeah. And that takes, you know, causes me to swallow a lot of pride. Like I do all this research and I have all these answers. And you're just going to eat a little bit more protein, but that's actually, you know, that's if I, if you're eating more protein than you would without my involvement in your, in your, um, in your, in your journey, that's awesome. That's it. I have to look at that as being, then I'm being good. Otherwise I'm just a scientist. And again, I am a scientist, (laughs) Um, but if I'm actually working with people and not subjects, that's something that I'm appreciating more and more and more the prescription Versus what are the execution? They, they kind of have to match. Yeah, got to marry those up for sure. Could we circle back, Bill? You mentioned the ketogenic diet there. And obviously there's some potential applications, but you mentioned just uh, some potential roadblocks or pitfalls of, for physique clients if they're maybe doing that for too long or inappropriate timing. Can you touch on that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I know this is like religion to some people. So I'll start with, <laughs> have, I, I don't have any ill will against ketogenic diets. I actually think they're very helpful for some people. I've I've done ketogenic. I used to be a bodybuilder when I was younger yeah. and I utilized the ketogenic diet. So no hate towards the ketogenic diet. You but if your, goal out there. Is, <laughs> <laughs> if your goal is to maximize your muscle mass and you are going to adopt a ketogenic diet, then I am, am, I am to be the bearer of truth. I need to tell you, you are leaving some gains on the table. You are not maximizing your anabolic potential. We have multiple studies at the cellular level that a ketogenic diet is not as anabolic as a higher carbohydrate diet. We even have um, application studies or applied studies in bodybuilders where a ketogenic low carb diet, they gain less muscle mass which that research has come out more recently and it supported the cellular data that we had to rely on in years past. So if the goal is, if you're in a mass gaining phase to build muscle, a ketogenic diet is not the best approach. If you are someone who's in a fat loss phase and you're going to reduce your calories and you're okay with not maximizing all of the muscle mass that you could retain. I think a ketogenic diet is awesome because one thing it does better than the other diet is it restrains hunger. It's it lowers hunger better than the other diets. And that's been clinically demonstrated yeah. in several studies. So fat loss, I think it's, I think it needs to be on the table for consideration. If, if the goal is muscle gain, Fine, just be just be aware that you won't maximize those adaptations if 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 a ketogenic diet is your is your diet. Fantastic. I'm gonna pivot here quickly, Bill, and uh, some great posts that you got on your Instagram. A lot of the questions that you ask, and, and I'm guessing this is some of your courses or with your students, is some good true or false. So I'm gonna throw some of these back at you. These are questions that we hear a lot from practitioners or clients or athletes. So. A first one, a DEXA machine or a bod pod, two validated methods, obviously, for assessing body composition would yield the same amount of fat loss in athletes dieting. True or false? False. 
Can you explain? Um, yeah. Whenever you use different machines. So if we have an athlete um, and we have her do a DEXA, a bod pod, skin folds, ultrasound, and BIA, don't be surprised if we're 8% different across the machines. So I, I think the 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 take-home message is for practitioners, choose a method and you have to stick with that method because, and, and again, we want the method, which is actually the most important part is whatever method we choose, is it able to detect changes in body composition? So it's nice if it's accurate. So let's say let's say our female athlete's true body fat percentage is 30%. Let's say that's her true body fat. And a machine, pick one of the five that I just mentioned, it puts her at 32%. Oh, that's horrible. It's not accurate. But that same machine is better able to detect changes as she loses body fat. I would rather have that. I would it's it's let me just say this. A the ideal body fat assessment device is close to being true to the accurate mm -hmm. and it is close to detecting changes in body fat losses or gain, depending on what you're doing over time. Coaches are human and coaches have ideas in their head of what body fat levels should be. These days, different devices becoming more popular. Staffs will change the device that they use. And to your point, for now, all of a sudden, the number is going to be different. Uh, but the coaching staff have got a certain number in their head. So I'm curious if I put you on the spot and then you've got to sort of explain to the coach or to the staff, you know, what are some of the ways that you might do that? Yeah, so the the first thing I would do is counsel the athlete to say, before you step on this or before you we do this, the number is irrelevant. What is relevant is your performance. So is your performance... Uh, as an example, let's say your body fats, let's go to a male this time. Um, is your performance better when your body fat's at 20% or 15%? And again, depending on the sport, that could change. Or let's say 15 versus 10. Yeah. What matters is yeah. what, what keeps your scholarship or what keeps you getting the next contract is your performance, not the number on this device. So I would always start with that education. So they're not married to the number. They have to perform. They are a performer. So I would start there. What was the question again? Well, then the, to the coaching staff, the coaches have that number of this guy's meant to be X number. And now you're telling me he's Y. What's going on? Why Why is he gaining 6% body fat? Yes. No. Um, since we changed the device, that has now changed the numbers. So it's very important that we as a staff, once we decide on a device, that we make sure that that device is upkept, that we have prevent, that we do the maintenance on it, that it's maintained, cleaned, et cetera, and that we use that same device. And in fact, I would, if the coach has time, let's let's go. Let's here's get on the old device. Now get yeah. on the new device. See, did you? Let's say there's a three percent difference. Did you just gain three percent body fat as you walk from the old device to the new device? No, that's just the reality of of body composition devices. And I would also say this, like if I test your heart rate now and it's 60 beats per minute, and we test it again, it's 54 beats per minute. Well, what happened? Like you're the same human and that was two minutes apart. No, there's just natural variability in your own heart rate. 
just like there's variability, imagine even more when you have different machines, different technology. Uh, so that's th those would be some examples that I would use to try to conceptualize in the coaches. And again, um, I would always want to preach to the athlete and, and, and the coaches. My, my job is to help them not, I mean, I, I, depending on the coach, but as I look at my job, if I were a strength and conditioning coach, to keep them on the field as much as I can. And again, I can't control a lot of that and to help them perform at their best. Yeah, well said. Another one for you here, true or false, most adults have over 100,000 calories of stored energy as body fat. True. And in my case, probably closer to 200,000. <laughs> Could you again explain that to still here in different circles of trying to increase dietary fats to be able to promote fat burning in that particular individual, but they might be 20 to 22% body fat, 25% body fat. Can you unpack that 100,000 calories a little bit for us? Yeah. So body fat, if, if it's, you know, 25% of your body, what in my case, that's like 50 pounds of fat. And then each gram of carbohydrate is nine calories. So you start getting how many grams are in a pound. And then you multiply that by nine, you, you quickly realize you have an unbelievable amount of energy stored as body fat. So at a, most people are going to have a minimum of 100,000 calories of fat. When you look at carbs, it's 2,000 calories. You can literally burn your carbs to almost nothing. Again, almost nothing, depending on if you're doing whole body workouts. Uh, a, more, a, a better way to say this is your, your capacity for energy in your body's carbohydrate stores is limited. Your body's capacity for energy from fat is virtually unlimited. And what about protein? The body doesn't like to use protein for energy, so we don't even really consider it as being a source of energy. It's carbs and fat. That's always paradoxical for people, isn't it? In the again, general population, if we're talking this idea of someone's trying to lose weight, they've literally got 100,000 plus calories of fuel on them, and yet they're going to be hungry between breakfast and lunch and lunch and dinner. Um, and so this goes back to your, you know, you touched on ketogenic diets and hunger. Curious, some of the other tips, tactics that you might use to help with hunger, because obviously that's a big part of... Uh, the fact that there's food everywhere is, is not helping us in terms of our people, in terms of being able to, to get from one meal to the next. Yeah. So two things immediately come to mind. One is relatively higher protein intake. So protein is the most yep. satiating nutrient. And again, yep. if you're an athlete, it's a, it's you, you're going to want it for recovery. You're going to want it to build more muscle make your muscle more functional, more greater strength. So protein for performance. Yes. But protein also to just help abate hunger. And then the other thing is, and this is uh, implied if you're an athlete, but for a general population type of person, exercising is the uh, what it does. And the research on this is in aerobic exercise. I don't know. We don't know if the same data applies to resistance exercise just because we don't have that data. But what, what aerobic exercise does is it helps to regulate your appetite and does this two ways. It helps with satiety and satiation. So let me explain them in 30 seconds. When you're eating a meal, if you have, if you have better satiation, you stop eating when you're full. So your, your ability to gotcha. stop eating 
is better when you're doing aerobic exercise. Second, your sati- uh, that's your satiation. So you end a meal when you're full. Satiety is the second part. You're not hungry in between meals. So after lunch, you are now, and you stopped eating because you felt full, your satiation was better, and now your satiety is better. And that means that you're not hungry between meals. So exercise, and this is going to seem paradoxical, exercise will increase your appetite, but it does it in a regulated way. And what I mean by that is you are not hungry when you've just eaten, and you're only hungry when it's time to eat again. So the the best thing somebody can do, and and again, this is new to me. I've not been in the appetite scientific research for, for most of my career, but one of the best things you can do to help people help Uh, help them control their hunger is to get them walking, help them with doing some type of aerobic activity. By the way, the thing that is um, the worst thing for appetite regulation or dysregulation is sedentary behavior. If you're sedentary, you're hungry all the time and you can't stop eating even though your body shouldn't need more nutrients. Yeah, uh, that that paints a pretty good picture right there. Uh, last one for you on the true or false is here. Amino acids are just as good as intact whole protein for maximizing muscle protein synthesis false. for the athletes. Yeah, that, that's false according to limited research, but two, um, and now just in the last, last few months, a third study and that, that third study basically reported no difference. So I'm aware of three studies, uh, two of them in humans, one of them in rats, uh, Intact protein, casein, whey, soy, whatever whatever the intact version is, is superior or at least not worse than the supplemental essential amino acid, branch chain amino acid uh, supplements. Well, that segues into my uh, the next area here, talking about supplementation. I mean, if we start on the physique side of things maybe the best place to start there is even supplements that are popular that really, you know, you've crossed off the list over the years um, as as just not being, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze or the evidence just isn't stacking up anymore. (laughs) I'm going to answer that in a way that if it's not caffeine, creatine, protein, or fish oil, (laughs) I don't, I don't, uh, well, beta alanine, it, uh, that can be effective depending on, uh, well, not for, not for a physique athlete. They're not training. They're not getting a high lactic acid, depending on the, depending on the sport, athlete. Team sport, ice hockey. Yes. Yeah. So depending on the sport, beta alanine would be an effective one. Uh, I'm just, I'm not very, uh, and again, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sports nutrition trained researcher. That's where mm-hmm. a lot of my early work was, there's just not a lot, in my opinion, based on my re- my my reading of the research, and I've written three textbooks on sports nutrition. It's kind of my 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 core. Kind of your thing. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm 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 just not. Uh, I, I it's just, and that's a hard message for a lot of people to to conceive because it's the me- the media messaging is it's it's hard to beat. I mean, this will make you better. This will make you better. Um, and it does at the cellular level, you'll find this or this one study did this. And again, I, I have the luxury. I can re- I can spend hours a day looking at what does all of the research suggest? Um, yeah. I'll give one the body of knowledge. Tell us. Yes. Yeah. Like one quick example. Um, 
at a very pivotal moment in my life when I was literally helped me make the decision to go into this new career, I read a book called Optimum Sports Nutrition. And this book said uh, uh, arginine and ornithine, like these amino acids, they will skyrocket your growth hormone. And I was like, I love this. I want to skyrocket. I think we were reading the same book at the same time. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know if I should say the author's name, I, I, um, but I read that and I'm like, wow. And then I, the more educated I got, I went back and those studies were in rats. Um, it wasn't even all of the, the, even the humans, it was like cherry picked. And I'm like, ah, no wonder this guy seems so amazing. Everything's amazing from, from his book. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, trash, but it was, it was not a, an accurate representation of the research. I mean, I always feel obligated to say if the study was in rats or primates, or I'm going to tell you that there was no have a pet rat. Go for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I don't watch many rat sports. So I, I tend not to, to read uh rat, you know, I tend not to, to <laughs> discuss. What's well, it? I like the message of keeping the main thing, the main thing. I mean, you talk about caffeine and creatine and, and protein and omegas. It's like, okay, let's make sure we're getting in those, those the big rocks, so to speak. Beta alanine is an interesting one around team sport because it can have a really great application. The challenge is getting athletes to take it daily. Yeah. You know, most want to just take it as a one-off. Just curious your thoughts. Um, obviously, we've got to get levels up to a certain threshold, but just curious your thoughts of athletes taking just on game days let's say if you're playing two or three games a week versus every day yeah i i, I would suggest it's wasting if you're not going to you have to take it you have to keep the levels just like creatine the you yeah. have to keep carnosine levels high and beta alanine will help you do that so yeah it's um it's kind of like creatine creatine's a daily uh, to keep levels saturated now daily doesn't mean 365 days a year if you miss some days you just, you, I don't, that's going to be, um, pro, you know, practically meaningless, but it is one of those things. Yeah. That, that, that needs to, needs to be a, more of a daily mindset, not just a one-off like caffeine. You can take just once and get all of the benefits. For sure. um, not all supplements are like that, unfortunately. Fantastic. Bill, listen, I really appreciate you carving out some time, you know, as we wind things down here, the question I've been asking, um, podcast guests, just around their their career, you know, lessons learned over the course of their career from when you were younger to now, you know, lessons through failure, you know, anything that comes to mind of something that shaped how you think today or, you know, a, a learning moment for working with a client or even maybe in a, in a, in a research setting. I'd, I'd, I'll answer this the way that I think is the most honest. I, I don't have a lot of failures and that is because of a failure of probably not... <laughs> Not not stepping outside of my comfort zone um, a lot. So I, I recently uh, did something on the on a business side, and I had no idea how it was going to do. But I did everything I could to, you know, there was going to be. I'm not going to forget it. Nothing's going to slip through the cracks. Um, and fortunately, it did well. It did better than I thought. So again, I, I say yes. I don't have a lot of um, experience failing, but again. I do fail in the sense that I everything I read all and I, I'd like to do a lot of um, productivity, personal improvement books and podcasts. I I really struggle with taking risks and 
allowing myself to fail. So there's my failure. I don't, I don't do that enough. Um, and one other thing that I just thought of, um, just back to my Instagram post, I, I do like to have, um, an, uh, an impact on the profession. And, and one of the, I, one thing I love with, um, I love talking about just trying to be a better professional career advancement, um, all of that stuff. So I, in my Instagram, I, I, I like to talk about, Hey, how can we do better at this? And people could care less what I think about bettering yourself as a fitness professional. You know what they want? They want true fossil and creatine. <laughs> so I, I've, I have failed in trying to, um, help the professionalism of, of fitness professionals and have been, okay, the, the market has spoken. They want me to shut up and do true, false and multiple choice. And I I'm, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, obviously tr tremendous career and, and massive impact. Maybe if I flip the question for you around just a tip that you would give a young practitioner or researcher. Yeah. Uh, find somebody that's doing exactly what you want to do. So get, get in their world and just try, you know, learn from them, ask them questions, ask her questions, find somebody. Yeah, I'm just going to say, find somebody that's doing exactly or close to what you want to do and learn, work for free, uh, wash their car, whatever you can do. Um, because Again, I'm a professor. I teach what you learn in a class, man. It's you need that, but man, you've you've, you've got to get with people. It's all people. People are going to give you the opportunities. They're going to teach you the things that I can't teach from a textbook or something. Amazing. Really appreciate you carving out some time. This has uh, been great, Bill. Where's the best place? Obviously, you got Instagram. You got a new coaching physique academy with 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 Lane Norton. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, we just launched that a week ago yesterday. It's called Physique Coaching Academy. So if anybody, it's it, it was literally designed by us. We, we've been working on that for several years and we just launched it last Congrats. week. But it's for people who want to become physique coaches. And that doesn't mean only bodybuilders. That means the exact type of clientele that we were yeah. talking about earlier. So anybody who works with Clients who want to lose body fat or yeah. build muscle. We we have an entire, it's an eight-month course. Um, it's an application only, so you have to actually apply to get into it. Um, and it's not just content videos. We also have three live sessions each week. Um, not, not all by me and Lane, but that's right. As soon as we get done here, I'm jumping on a call with all of our students and talking about the research process programming for muscle hypertrophy. So it's a very interactive mentorship style course. And uh, thank you for asking about that. Yeah. Congrats on that. Obviously, uh, appreciate you carving out some time and uh, look forward to touching base again soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the performance nutrition podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full video interviews, then check out the show notes at athleteperformancenutrition.com. Scroll down on the podcast tab and you'll find the full episodes and the research paper links. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time.
The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.